Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and I'm the author and creator of Hellenistic Christendom, where today I'm going to be offering an exposition on Kierkegaard's philosophy of spirit by way of looking at various works of art throughout Western history. Now, essentially what this presentation means is to examine more precisely Kierkegaard's philosophy of the human person, which can be expressed most succinctly through that famous passage that opens his 1849 book, The Sickness Unto Death, Man is Spirit. Therefore, our interest for looking more closely at Kierkegaard's philosophy of the human person is to examine various categories by which we can understand existing individuals as individuals. Kierkegaard's expression of the individual includes categories like truth, inwardness, earnestness, subjectivity, passion, and other relevant terms which involve the highest of principles, says Kierkegaard, that can be communicated indirectly or negatively. Hence, in this presentation, we're going to look through various examples of fine art, which is a phrase I've chosen for a very important reason. So given that this is going to be a presentation of Soren Kierkegaard's religious anthropology by way of examining fine art, I am suggesting that this presentation is going to be more than just flipping through old pretty pictures and paintings which hopefully remind you of Kierkegaard. Rather, the presentation is to help refine or sharpen the artistic, poetic side of Kierkegaard's thought, which inversely is to show the present viewer or listener some key insights into their own thinking about existence. Now, one of the ways I think we can have a doorway into this vital aspect of Kierkegaard's thought is by thinking a little bit better about art, by actually confronting our individual presence with the old masters about poetry, and thinking a little bit better as to how Christians, or human beings generally, can appropriate aesthetic categories into their own life. Now, this how will become very important a little bit later. But first, I'll begin my way of explaining my use of the phrase fine art. Now, to those of you that are not so caught up with your classifications of art, there is, of course, a difference between works of art, known by the French objet d'art, or literally art object. There's art, aesthetics, and even fine art. Now, aside from these distinctions, there is still collology, which is a part of metaphysics, whose subject matter is beauty as a transcendental of being, and hence goes beyond mere considerations of art. And then you even have the philosophy of art, whose object of inquiry is typically the question of human behavior's role or influence in the making or production of some work. However, despite all of the possible clarifications and detailed distinctions that could be made about art, I only want to propose a distinction between two kinds of art, fine art and useful art. Now, the English phrase, fine arts, is strictly equivalent in its denotative um, significance to the French beau arts and the German schonkunst. If this is the case, then that means fine is not being used as an adjective in the sense that this work may not be so fine, whereas another work is finer, and so forth. Rather, fine, deriving from the Latin finis, which means end, is rather referring to a form of art which is to be appreciated as being beautiful for its own sake, that is, as an end in itself, and is not being used as a means to something beyond itself. However, notice that this distinction has nothing to do with the intention of the artist and the recipients of the work. So, for example, the cabinet maker fashioned a table or chair in such a way so as to make it furniture, We may, however, take the given furniture as antiques to a museum, place the objects on an elevated platform with some red taped around it saying, do not touch. Now, in the same way, the painter might have an intention of producing something beautiful, which was intended to be enjoyed in itself. However, 
The buyer of the painting may conversely use the production to make money on its resale or hang it on a wall in their home. Hence, I will only be concerned with examples of fine art, examples which refer to various experiences and encounters with human emotions, with beauty, and above all, the authentic self. However, I'd like to make one final important clarification about art, and I'd like to do so by looking at the Greek philosopher Aristotle's theory of art. Now, the Greeks generally understood art and science as two very important ways of knowing. Now, science referred to the when, where, and what. Art referred more precisely to the how. So Aristotle recognized, I believe in the metaphysics, that nature isn't perfect. Nature can make mistakes. In our experience of nature, we recognize various imperfections such as corruption, degeneration, decay, disabilities, sickness, and so forth. The arts are then understood in a way of the various productions, perfections, or corrections that man applies to nature. Think of the art of the physician. Doesn't the various faults of nature rely on the art of the physician to correct these imperfections, that is, cure the patient? So poetic narratives include what we would call epics, novels, plays, or dramas, and have a special object of imitation, which is human action. More importantly, not a particular action at a certain moment, but rather action over the course of time. Hence, poetic narratives present our imaginations with resemblances of human action, often by way of historical or biographical inspiration. What is the difference between poetic and historical narratives, however? Well, Aristotle says the difference really lies in that poetic narratives are more scientific and philosophical, and thereby universal. Historical narratives, on the other hand, are singular. Stated another way, poetic narratives resemble more so the truths of science and philosophy, which concern the universal or the general. However, historical narratives refer to particular or singular narratives. For example, a biographical account of some event must concern itself with the event in question, which is a particular object of inquiry. Now, the reason why the distinction is important is because then we come across a distinction between poetic and logical truths. Truth, of course, pertains to the conformity of statements made by historians, scientists, and philosophers to an independent reality that actually exists. Now, logical truth has to do with the connection or correspondence between the judgments made by the mind and the facts that exist outside or independently of the mind. Now, in this way, the scientists and philosophers work by way of universal truths downward to the realm of establishing and understanding the particulars, which in historical inquiries pertains to facts that exist outside of the mind. Now, poetic truth, on the other hand, stands as a middle ground between the singular truths of history and the universal truths of science and philosophy. Now, poetic truth has to do with the realm of possibility which is an important phrase to remember for Kierkegaard here in a little while. But for now, a poetic narrative or story for Aristotle is a likely story. If the story tells us about human actions with some degree of possibility, or verisimilitude even, the story has poetical truth. And this is important because this is really a distinction between the kinds of truths found in books, which may be subjected to a Socratic method of questioning, and also the kinds of poetical truths and contents of narratives which are found in musical compositions and depictive paintings. As Mortimer Adler has brilliantly said on this point, 
quote, the realm of the possible is hospitable to a wide variety of different, even contrary, possibilities. All these differing possibilities are compossible, things that can coexist. The realm of the actual is the realm of incompossible, things that cannot exist. And this very sort of discussion will help us with Kierkegaard's intentions and self-understanding as a poetic thinker, as well as a religious author. Now, the first issue I want to cover is the matter of beginnings. And this isn't necessarily a term explicitly used in Kierkegaard, though is one which is faithful and I think even helpful to the enthusiast or lay reader of Kierkegaard to understand him better. Now, in trying to discover or pursue truth, or more precisely, obtain knowledge in some area, we are all concerned with first things. That is, we are all concerned with where to begin, or in asking the sort of questions like, what are the most basic and fundamental details or principles of the object of my inquiry in order for me to best understand this? And perhaps you might be familiar with the popular dictum, every expert was once a beginner. Now, suppose I wanted to become an expert in the art of being a human being. Where then do I begin? Well, a large portion of the answer to this question has to do with childlikeness. Now, more precisely, notice that I didn't say childishness, but childlikeness. So Kierkegaard says in his journals that there is such an intimacy between children and nature that it almost is as if God had intended it to remain thus. However, children are not yet spirit, which means to say that they are not yet a unity of body and soul. Instead, Kierkegaard clarifies that children really exist or remain in the category of the soul, which is to essentially be making the claim that children really act in immediacy. Now, notice here the example before us of the unknown American artist's depiction of a child in a piece called Baby in Red Chair, which was painted sometime between 1810 and 1830. Now, there's a sense in which the soft colors and stylistic depiction of the child denote that, basically, the child is loved. Totally free from the hazards or expectations of life, the child sits, or really awaits, in quiet, at least for now, contentment which can serve as a fine template or representation of joy in infancy. The head is laid back, the arms almost as if intently crossed over one another to mimic patience. Now the half, spot, uh, the half smile speaks more than just ignorant bliss, but a sort of unreflecting joy. The experience of the joyful is immediately impressionable on the child, which is why I don't think the painting depicts patience so much as it depicts reception or a receiving. The child is not interrupted by reflections or arguments for this joy. It is there, present, immediately for it. Now notice, however, that this very sort of reception is really a kind of communication that Kierkegaard is trying to convey in his understanding of human existence. You can notice this similar sort of feature, beautifully depicted in Vincent van Gogh's um, First Steps after Millet, uh, which shows the child in the context of education through love. The child with arms stretched out wide, extended in excitement, shows the distance between them and the completion of their maturity. Notice that the wheelbarrow and the shovel by the father are cast aside for now. All that matters is the mutual dependence of love's activity towards others. And this is shown through the double mode of maturity in the painting. The child, through love, is coming to actualize or even develop their maturity through the completion of the lesson. And the parents are likewise coming into maturity as they unite themselves in the activity of maturing the child. 
So now in our growing or maturing in the knowledge of the truth, Kierkegaard is ultimately pointing the individual towards communication or relation with others. The individual person armed with insight and observation is able to venture out into the world and understand themselves more fully by way of relation to God and others. Now, Soren Kierkegaard in the concept of anxiety interestingly refers to the specific Latin use of the phrase communicating as communicare, which refers to the experience or exchange that takes place between the believer and the transubstantiated presence of Christ in the Eucharistic sacrament. More succinctly stated, human beings are communicative. They are, more significantly, relational beings. The very act of human existence is, a, is an exchange of knowledge as well as presence between the self and the other, which here can include to mean one's neighbor as well as God. Notice, however, that this is a uniquely human activity. That is, in the creation of the world as written in the early chapters of Genesis, only man is created in the image of God. Consider now Gian Lorenzo Bernini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa, completed in 1652. Now, in this scene, we are being presented with the ecstasy or transverberation of St. Teresa of Avila. Now, transverberation comes from a Latin phrase that literally means to pierce through, and even has an Italian designation, which means heart wound. These words help us understand the sort of narrative taking place, but notice the difference between Avila and the angel. You see, rapture comes from the medieval Latin raptura and means seizing, which is a very different experience from ecstasy. Teresa is experiencing a kind of religious euphoria or joy, which isn't seizing her, but is transverberating her. That is, it is piercing through. Hence, this joy is almost a kind of piercing pain in a way, inasmuch as it is also joyfulness. However, Notice the difference of the angel. He is expressing joy in the fullest expression of selflessness, which shows itself by a mere smile, which observes her with total delight. And this is indeed not an ecstasy for him, as he is merely an instrument to the sort of divine intimacy that only she, as human being, is able to enjoy. However, it is well understood in Kierkegaard that the existing individual is not going to immediately understand or appropriate themselves to the truth or reality of what the ecstasy of Teresa depicts. It's going to take some time, of course, to arrive at the robust expression of religious pathos from the sort of childlike immediacy as we were talking about before. However, despite this difficulty of transition between one kind of existence to another, which indeed takes time, passion, inwardness, and so forth, this is precisely why an understanding of art in Kierkegaard is important. Art is a distinctively human feature. When commenting upon the 20,000-year-old Lascaux paintings um, in France, those cave paintings, G.K. Chesterton once aptly stated that, quote, art is the signature of man. Even God can only be said to be an artist in an analogous sense, to which humans are artists in the fullest sense. While God is likewise a causal and creative agent, human beings are only these things in a secondary or derivative sense. When God creates or produces, as we see in the creation of the world, God creates ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, whereas humans do not. The very production of art, then, is distinctively and indicatively human. And what better way to enter the school of the self than to learn um, through art as well as poetry. And this could be expressed in one way in Kierkegaardian terms that a human being who is not yet spirit could encounter Bernini's ecstasy of Teresa 
and almost accrue a kind of anxiety, which Kierkegaard says can express itself in various ways through mockery, distractions, boredom, etc. Because the poetic narrative of the work is presented to the individual as a possibility. However, the anxiety arises once the individual recognizes that the possibility is for him. Now, the, possi uh, the possibility of the reality depicted in the work of Bernini means that the individual stands in an ambiguous relation to the object before them. I should say more accurately that they stand in an ambiguous relation to the form of the work, that is, the unified meaning of the work, rather than just its matter or material substance, which in this case is marble. Now, since God is spirit and hence God is a no-thing, the existing individual cannot relate to God in an objective manner, but, mather, but, but rather must relate to God in a subjective manner. So anxiety for Kierkegaard stands as a kind of school, he says, by which all men should pass. In chapter 5 of the concept of anxiety, Kierkegaard refers to one of the Grimm brothers' tales of the boy who wanted to learn what it meant to be anxious. Every man must go through this similar task or trial, says Kierkegaard. That is, especially if one learns to be anxious in the right way. One has learned the ultimate, he says. Now, consider Wilhelm's uh, Hammerschoy's interior, which he completed in 1908. Here we see a woman depicted head down in a room kept to herself. The atmosphere of the room provides one a sense of solitude, or perhaps more precisely, a sort of stillness. And here I think we have an apt expression of the interior life. The sort of dark, brooding colors offer one a sense of imprisonment rather than a mere kind of introversion. Now, despite this apparent uh, imagery of imprisonment, the artist shows before us various doors and luminous windows, despite this sort of individuality. And just like every other existing individual then, there is a presentation of possibility before the self. If she stays motionless, then certainly that is her choice. Life presents us with an array of infinite possibilities, but the question, Kierkegaard says, is that of possibility in the individual which is honest with itself. Now, as the philosopher, uh, the Russian philosopher Lev Shestov once, averved, uh, once observed in his short tract, Apotheosis from Groundlessness, or translated into English as All Things Are Possible, the natural world is arranged in such a way where all things are possible. Now, by this, Shestov doesn't mean that a stone may possibly become bread but rather that everything in nature may have been completely different and no one would really know otherwise. So on this point, take a look and get ready for this mouthful. David Tinez, the youngest Octut Wiedpold Wilhelm in his, patter, in his painting gallery in Brussels, which he completed in 1651. Now this beautiful painting, which is actually a copy or second version of an original by the same artist, depicts the Archduke, uh, the Archduke of Austria standing with his impressive gallery of paintings some of which include depictions of other famous artists such, uh, such as Titian, Giorgione, Paolo Veronese, and many others. Now, this painting shows us an analogy for how the individual appropriates himself towards truth by way of a kind of admiration. By understanding truth as knowledge, the Archduke only needs to acquire truth by way of collection of more things, more books, more paintings, and etc. And similarly, just as Kierkegaard through the pseudonymous author Victor Eremita, dedicated an entire section of part one in either or to an appraisal or a aesthetic review of Mozart to show one's admiration and grand knowledge as the truth. The mistake of the individual and of the archduke is to view themselves as synonymous with this truth. 
In other words, Kierkegaard is protesting a kind of speculative thought which is indifferent to existence. Therefore, possibility always keeps the individual in the foreground of either inwardness or outwardness. Now, if outwardness confronts possibility, this is really just the self's way of resorting to the bodily categories in order to relate or respond to truth. In other words, we human beings stand in finite relations to other human beings who are also finite, and hence can remain in hiddenness when they try to appropriate themselves to various possibilities or fictions, if you will, in attempting to remain finite. So consider the example of Carvaggio's um, Narcissus, which he completed in 1509. Now, this melancholic depiction shows us Narcissus, where in Ovid's Metamorphosis, we are told that he was captured and unable to break his gaze with the surface of the pool's reflection of his face. Now, with the contrasting colors and luminous presence of the actual self and the phantasmic self, there is a sense in which this rendition of the classical myth is an invitation of egoistic love towards the self, which nature cannot return. Arthur Boyd's Cave, Narcissus, and Orange Tree from 1976 shows something a little more revealing. Narcissus is notably, noticeably excuse me, more animalistic or bestial in this picture. Notice the sort of tail appendage on the lower back, and even the sort of savagistic hunch, which is all too indicative of anxiousness and narcissism. And this is a narcissist which has lost his humanness. This loss of self, says Kierkegaard, is the quietest loss of all. Um, the self, more precisely, is hidden. Now, the same thing between a narcissist and his cave and every other existing individual is anxiety. They both stand in an ambiguous relation with the object of their anxiety, the object of which is a no thing. Here we can perhaps concoct something of an imaginative construction for the caves of poets, the caves of philosophers, and the tombs of Christians. Now, the caves of the poet or of the ascetic immediate person are the sort of appropriated attitudes towards hiddenness and depression, towards either weeping or laughing, closing themselves off behind a veil of vague tears. In a succinct phrase, one who is stuck in the pain of a poetic existence. At its most extreme passion, says Kierkegaard, it is despair. Hence, it is not existence, but rather existence possibility towards existence. It is a self which is autopathetic, deceptively occupying itself with the suffering of others. They have thought everything possible, but yet they have not existed at all. Then there is the cave of the philosopher. Now from his cave, the philosopher was able to break free from the hiddenness of his sense impressions and went beyond what was immediately given to him instead to that of what was most true, that is, what could be recollected and hence remind one, if you will, of their own immortality. He ascends the ladder of being to that which is most true. However, possibility, different from the poet and the philosopher, now comes to the level of the tomb of the Christians. In the Gospels, we are told by our blessed Lord that, quote, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, when Kierkegaard says that we need to pass through the school of possibility, he does not mean that we pass through possibilities as if we are trying on different wigs, the possibility of being happy, of having a good fortune, and all that. Rather, possibility for the existing individual becomes educative, which means in possibility, all things become equally possible. 
Therefore, the existing individual can come to know both the terrible and the joyful. However, through faith, they have made possibility educative, or expressed differently, subservient to themselves. Anxiety, yet again, remains for the poet, as it does for the philosopher, as it does for the Christian. Only the Christian, however, is able to appropriate themselves through anxiety by faith. However, the beginning of this entire journey takes place in the primordial waters where we started this presentation with. In other words, the sensuous or immediate individual, finding themselves in a poetic, fantastical existence, must begin by way of inwardness. In contemplating truth, a distinction has to emerge in one's own life development between truth as knowledge and truth as inwardness. However, in thinking that there is somehow a congruence between thinking and existence, in other words, that the two activities are somehow synonymous with one another, there is a kind of deception towards the self which takes place. The only way to squeeze out of this deception between thought and existence is to incorporate inwardness which can only be communicated subjectively or indirectly, says Kierkegaard. And here we are back again at the idea of communication. One thing we have to bear in mind is that we are reading Kierkegaard. He is the author and we are the reader. There's an element of trust that goes into that sort of relationship, one which Kierkegaard sort of deceptively arranges for us in some of his books. Now, in this case, as the sensuous reader who lacks inwardness, tries to read Kierkegaard in an attempt to gain more knowledge about some subject which they don't presently understand, they suddenly find that Kierkegaard dissolves from his role as author, and hence only the reader is left sort of naked and exposed on the stage, uh, assuredly coming to realize that he's been had. So I'll finish this this deliberation with some thoughts from Paolo Veronese's Nozze di Cana, or The Wedding at Cana, which is one of my favorite paintings and expressions of Kierkegaard's philosophy of the existing individual. Now, in this painting, we are presented with a huge banquet, one which has all the features of action over time. There is something of an earthly recognizability about it. However, the painting at the same time is quite unearthly. I think this is most significantly the case in the sense that it is not earthly because of some imaginative locational sense, but rather because the painting doesn't really seem to be in time. Notice the subject of the painting pertains to the wedding or the wedding banquet of John II, which took place in first century Jerusalem. Yet due to the style of the surrounding architecture and historical characters around the table itself, there's a sort of contradiction taking place in the picture. When you get closer to the painting upon inspection of the details, the contradiction expands and something of a paradox confronts the viewer. There is a difference between the meat carvers above Jesus who are seen preparing the main course and stand as foreshadows to his future death by crucifixion. However, notice that the diners are already on the dessert course, suggesting that the main course has already passed. Notice even the dog in the foreground of the painting in front of Jesus chewing on the bone. This is perhaps an homage that even the lowest of animalistic creation unknowingly participates in the death of Christ. And two final yet obvious observations are worth mentioning. First, despite all of the commotion and busyness of this banquet, notice that everyone is silent. Despite this massive party, no one is actually speaking. Second, Jesus remains in the very middle of the frame, in the middle of the banquet, and almost glaringly is 
staring dead center at the viewer of the painting. So this, to me, is an amazing depiction of Christ's gaze, if you will, that stretches through time, not only from his own time, but even extended to the present-day individual, who, as Kierkegaard says, can enjoy eternal happiness despite this historical approximation. 2,000 years or 20 minutes are means of little consequence between Christ and the Christian. And I think this painting beautifully, that is really fantastically, captures that simple truth.